You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored hello and welcome to tfm's local books and comics show here for star trek and i am just one of your hosts matthew rushing and with me as he is always these days the illustrious captain christopher jones illustrious huh i thought you were gonna say luminous or illuminated or whatever's going on here in my little studio space with the lighting as we yes get ready to talk about some comics today and a great studio lighting you have in fact i love the uh the wonderful picture of deep space nine it's as if you're floating out there in space with our beloved space station so yeah it's bringing warm feelings to my heart chris yeah this is the closest that that we're going to get for a while to any more hd High definition Deep Space Nine, I think. Seriously. Oh, man. Uh, well, we'll go down that road another day. But um, we're really excited because uh, this episode, we got a great interview with James Swallow talking about his brand new book, The Dark Veil, uh, all about the Titan in the Picard universe. So we're so excited to have him back. And uh, before we get there, of course, we've got a couple of comics that we're going to talk about. But we do just want to remind everybody um, that, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcast here with Literary Treks. Uh, Chris and I were actually even talking about before the show about how we've got some things in the works to be able to bring you a couple more episodes uh, throughout the year uh, as well. So uh, stay tuned for those. Uh, we're definitely committed to making sure that you get your Literary Treks podcast. Uh, but you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Of course, you can find us... And the Babel Conference, where you can discuss all of the things going on here on the network with fans from around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts or any of the uh, Apple products, please give us a star rating review, help people find the show. Um, and so, um, yeah, all of those places we want to make sure, of course, you're subscribed so you get the show as soon as it drops. But, uh, Chris, in our, in our new section, we've got a couple more comic reviews. They're, they're very steady these days with comics. Uh, and um, so we're we're in the next uh, issue, which is the third issue of Seven's Reckoning. And this is definitely an interesting issue because I would say that really it feels mostly like the setup for the end. So there are yeah. a couple of, you know, things that we get revealed here. But on a whole, the issue itself... I would say it's going to be incumbent on the end to really know whether or not how and how all this plays out. And and I'll be honest is that the the you know the first couple issues I thought were really interesting, uh, and this one has left me uh, a little less enthused for the comic than I was with those first two issues. 
Mm, yeah, I can see that because I, I kind of have the same feeling going through. But I was thinking that last time, I remember I asked you why you thought Seven might pick a side in right. this and how it might play into the idea of seven and, of Seven's Reckoning. And there's one point in this issue where they talk about how the story can be changed. So again, as we talked about last time, it's kind of like Battlestar Galactica. The yep. story is cyclical, right? That's what these people believe. But they have a feeling here, this character, I think it's Grebe, right? The the guy thinks that he's going to be the, the, the bearer who can change the story. And he thinks that the story can be changed. And then there is another point where they're told that if they surrender then this segment will not remain part of their narrative. Right. So it's like a part of their life that can be removed. And in that sense, the story can be changed a bit. And so that started making me think about Seven and how she was rescued from the Borg Collective mm-hmm. by Voyager. So as a child, she had one life and then she became a Borg drone and that could have been the end of her story, but she was pulled away by Janeway and the Voyager crew, and now she has a different life. And in a sense, that segment can be removed from her narrative. It, not really, because it's always a part of who she is, but she's no longer stuck there. That's not the path that she's on for the outcome right. of her story. And so that just struck me as maybe the most interesting part of this uh, of course you know there's the twist about the fact that uh the uh people who are being held down here mm-hmm. are the actual the, the past leader was one of them mm-hmm. not the other race so you know there's that twist there but this thing about seven is what stood out to me as maybe being the hook in this mm-hmm. episode or this this uh part of the the four-part comic yeah i thought uh you know as you were mentioning that a whole idea with um you know uh the vesh finding out that it was actually them who were who was the dawn bringer i mean the, the statue yeah, in this the room yeah. that they're not even allowed to go into that you know him and seven find their way into allows them to see that you know it is it was them that was the uh mm-hmm. the dawn bringer originally but and but but it's even more insidious than that because once they get in the room, they find a false statue yep. that's there to support the story. And then Seven has to dig more to find yep. the truth. So, you know, that was an interesting layer of how they're they're keeping the Vesh down. Yeah, and I thought that um, I, I that was one part of the comic that I didn't really like because I didn't feel like they were doing a good enough job of explaining what Seven was doing. Um, they just kind of like... Yeah, it, true. It just kind of came out. It was almost like, uh, you know, it's a comic, so show, don't tell. Um, and they just kind of tell us that, oh, she's found out this information. And like, okay. Um, but I was thinking about what you were talking about with how, you know, this change of story. And, and I think in some ways, maybe what they're trying to say with this comic is that also Seven the Borg lied to her. Like, you know, the the Borg lied. Right. And, and, and that lie controlled her life. And so once she was pulled from the lie, uh, now 
um, she has a whole new perspective on life. You know, she she's she's living life again in in a way that she would have never thought possible under you know Borg doctrine, and um, I think that's interesting. But I also don't feel like this comic has really so far done a fantastic job of really making those connections. Like I feel like I'm having to really pull out those connections myself, um, but not in a good way because they're like really well portrayed i just feel like it wasn't till you said that that something clicked in my brain oh okay that's what we're doing yeah i i think maybe we could use a few flashbacks maybe a few of her memories of being Mm -hmm. in the collective and feeling like she was being lied to or oppressed or she couldn't chart her own path Mm -hmm. as a borg drone she's not going to have that desire anyway you know that's sort of us looking back at it now after she's been uh severed from the collective then maybe she could look back and and see that so it might be a little bit difficult to portray but i i do think that some of those flashbacks anyway might help build the connection that i think is what they're going for in this story when we get to the end of the story and it will be revealed, I suspect, in the fourth part. Then we can look back at the entire four parts together, and it probably will be a little bit clearer along the way just because we know what's going to happen. But yeah, as we go, I've been having a little bit of trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, So then the next comic we've got is is Star Trek Year 5, number 18, and um, you know the Enterprise is still on its way home. And they are uh, passing a planet, and it's Proxima Centauri. Um, and it turns out that there is a a virus, a pandemic happening on this planet that is killing people quite quickly, and it seems to be going through the air. Um, and um, I was like, you know, I I um, I get where this comic is coming from. But I'm not quite sure that I I need more pandemic in my life. Um, you know, I I think yeah. a, a year of it and uh, in, in real world in the real world was was enough. So I I just say right up front, I don't love that we're we're doing this in this comic because I'm so tired of hearing about it. I I, I want my yeah. entertainment to have something else that I can focus on. You know, Star Trek can do other things right now than than yeah. give me this. Yeah, I had the same feeling initially. And at the start, it definitely feels like an on-the-nose thing of there's a pandemic. You even see people with scarves pulled up over their noses. And then the leader has like the clear mask, which I don't know if you guys have those in the US, but I've seen people wearing them them here in Japan sometimes that are like a very clear, not like the face shield type thing, but just like small that fits over your nose Mm -hmm. and your mouth down to your chin. But anyway... But there is another angle to this, which is that it is a virus that's airborne, but it doesn't really seem to, within the story, be a pandemic. It's more like a biological Mm -hmm. terrorist attack yeah, carried out by Gary Seven's cat, Isis, which is an unfortunate connection (laughs) name-wise these days, but that's the character's name. And that's sort of what was interesting to me about the story mm-hmm. is why would she be attacking the capital city of Proxima Centauri? We know from the previous issue that 
she and Gary Seven are somehow involved in this plot related to the presidency of the Federation. So essentially, we've got a terrorist attack against the capital city of a Federation planet by someone who's involved with a plot against the presidency of the Federation, but mm-hmm. we don't know right now why or what's going on. Yeah, and um, you know, my my guess is is that um, they're doing this as a way to basically wag the dog to get what they want, which is a more isolationist, uh, you know, um, you know, populist Federation. So that's mm-hmm. my guess. Um, but I, that is where. You know, and I'm glad that you brought us to that point because that is the point where this became interesting. You know, um, and and then not only that, but there's an interesting tidbit we hear, uh, and there was a discussion between Bones and and Kirk about um, Spock and how Spock has been unusually animated recently, um, and Bones is worried about him. Um, and I, I think um, what we're going to get here, too, is planting the seeds for why Spock would leave the Enterprise and, and, and you know, um, go to Vulcan to try and purge all emotion finally uh, in the motion picture. So that I'm really interested to see. And um, then, of course, you know, fascinatingly enough uh, and not shocking enough because it's not shocking at all, but Bones is the one. Uh, who is exposed to this virus uh, and therefore uh, doesn't look like he's going to be able to help too much with trying to figure out what this what this virus is. And that's kind of where we leave everything. Um, the Enterprise has is, is got a, a sick bay operation in uh, their hangar deck uh, as a quarantine area. Um, and so... I those setups, you know, with what's going on with Bones, what's going on with Spock, and then the idea of what the heck is going on with ISIS and why is she doing all this, um, that is fascinating. Uh, and so I'm glad that this comic did not just go for the complete obvious, and it took that and it's now running with it in a in a way that's it's telling a Star Trek story, you know. Um, and and uh, mm-hmm. you know, so far I have to say, you know, coming back to uh, the the comics. Um, here with with the year five, um, I'm enjoying this. I think it's really interesting idea. This whole thought process of them coming back home, and their journey back home, and the reflections they're having, but also just kind of the way that they're setting up what you know where these characters are going to go to uh, before we see them again in uh, the motion picture. So I like it. I'm I'm, I'm really interested now to see where this is going to go. Yeah, I'm curious to find out what Gary Seven's role is yes. in all this. <laughs> I, you know, I, I had assumed that ISIS is just doing this because Gary Seven has told her to go do this, but I don't know if that's really where they're going with it. There is one point where she, you know, she says Kirk, it seems like she's after Kirk. I think it's possible that the whole attack was designed just to lure the enterprise there to lure Kirk there. And now she's going after mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Which, you know, they, I imagine they want to eliminate him, so there's no possibility of him becoming the Federation president. Mm. But, but I, I don't. I'm not clear on whether she has some personal vendetta, personal motivation for this, or if she's carrying out some sort of plot, being masterminded mm. by Gary Seven. So at least with this one, 
yeah, I don't know where we're going in the next issue, but I'm very curious about it. Yeah, which is always a good place to be with an ongoing series that kind of keeps you interested, <laughs> right. you know, and, and wanting <laughs> to go to that next issue. So good on them. Uh, and hopefully both of these, uh, you know, uh, comics will uh, continue their story well and, you know, we'll get a good wrap up with uh, the seven comic and, and this story will continue to to find new and fascinating ways to tell the story as, as the Enterprise heads home. So. Um, well, so much fun, of course, getting to talk about the comics, but, uh, Chris, I think it's time for us to dive into the interview with James. Well, it's so excited, uh, to have James Swallow here to talk about his brand new book, uh, The Dark Veil. It's in the Picard series, but this book actually deals with the Titan and their adventures leading up to what we would see in that series. And so, First, James, I got to ask you, because this is such an interesting thing for you. Obviously, you wrote uh, Titan novels uh, before, so you've been an integral part of kind of creating that crew, uh, creating the storylines that move forward for the Titan uh, in the books that we had gotten there. And so I wanted to ask you what it was like to finally write Titan in canon now. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back on the show. It's great to be here again. Um, and as to your question, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting challenge to kind of thread the needle between what is, uh, as you say, it's a Titan novel, but it's a Picard novel. So is it, is it a Titan novel with a Picard badge on it or is it a Picard novel with Titan in it? And I, you know, you can take it either way, I guess, but it was, yeah, it was interesting to do that because we, we have this new continuity now that, that has kind of moved on from where the, the, the lit verse novels are. So we have a different version of the Titan from the one that you might be familiar with from the novels, but there's also a lot of similarities to it. So what I had to do was kind of chart this course between these two different sort of pole stars. And uh, one of the things that we, we've been doing with all of the, the new series of Star Trek books with the Star Trek Discovery novels and with the, the Star Trek Picard novels, is we've been working very closely with CBS, uh, primarily with uh, our good friend Kirsten Bayer, you know, who former Star Trek novelist, who's now kind of been upgraded upstairs to being a proper Star Trek writer on the TV show and a producer and everything. She is our kind of point person for that. So we, we worked very closely together and, um, when I was given this job to do, I said to her, one of the first things was like, well, how much, how much of the Litverse Titan universe can I bring into the, into this sort of the semi-canonical space that these novels now exist in? And we had a long discussion about, well, maybe this, but not that, bring this character in, but not that character. And, you know, I was just trying to find a kind of good space. So it's interesting to do almost a parallel reality version of these characters but it's been it's been a really fun challenge and the core thing about titan that's always made me enjoy writing stories set on board that ship is is the pairing of Riker and troy is my, my favorite you know two of my favorite star trek characters of all time so the book orbits around their experiences and i knew that if i continue to follow that path that would give me a strong basis that to, the entire novel would kind of orbit around did you um did you sit down with uh as we affectionately know her as KMFB uh, with, uh, you know, uh, kind of the, the, the timeline of the Titan and where uh, stories that had happened, because you, you, you know, reference, um, you know, the, the books that came right after Nemesis where Titan, you know, is, is you know, their, their mission is kind of preempted of, of exploring to go to, to deal with what happened at Romulus. 
Um, and so uh, was there like, did you guys sit down with kind of a timeline and be like, okay, this kind of, this part of the story could fit here and this won't really fit. So, because uh, I, I noticed obviously having read all of those, some of the things that, you know, feel very similar uh, to, uh, and storylines that feel similar. Um, but then of course there's that divergence that we get. And so was that part of the process is kind of sitting down with that timeline and seeing like, okay, this fits, this doesn't fit, you know, this doesn't fit, this does fit. Yeah. A little bit of that. I mean, it was, it's kind of more vague than that really. A little bit more woolly of it, I think would be, would, to be honest, you know, it's not like I sat there with a checklist going, yes, no, yes, no, you know, <laughs> kind of crossing out what I can and can't do. This is very much, as I say, it's, it's a different form of a timeline. And there's a couple of times in the book where I, I kind of deliberately nod towards that about how things are slightly different with this version of Titan. It's right at the very end of the book, there's a there's a conversation with um, with Picard and Riker, and, and Picard kind of reflects on the fact that the, the Titan uh, would have had this mission where it would have gone out and done certain things, and it would have had... Uh, you know the the very species diverse crew that we saw in the, right. in the in the novels, but because of the events with the synth attack on Mars and the you know and the Romulan supernova, things had to change. So what I'm I'm directly saying there to readers is this is kind of where the junction point happened. This is where the Litverse went off in one direction and took one sort of take on this, but these novels are taking a different take, and and this is the route that they're going, and these are the kind of the reasons that uh, you know things don't kind of marry up 100. percent yeah, and I think, you know, what I loved about that is that, um, you know, obviously for somebody who's been so, inver- uh, you know, invested in, in the lit verse uh, side of things, you know, it was so great to see, you know, just those nods there. And um, so I was kind of wondering, you know, when you talked with Kirsten, were there any kind of, for you in your mind, were there any non-negotiable characters that like you had to have in this novel um, that it wouldn't feel like Titan to you without them? Oh, definitely. And, and sum that up in two words, Christine Vale, right? Because mm-hmm. Christine Vale's a character that, you know, that we built from the ground up in, into the, the lit verse. And, and she has a really strong, passionate fan base. And I love Ryan her as well. I think she's just, she's one of my favorite sort of lit verse creations. And it's always fun to kind of revisit her. And I said to Kristen, I really want to make, can we, can we have Vale in this story? Because yeah, I, I don't want to create a, a new first officer character from the ground up because it, it just won't have the energy and the impact and it won't have the resonance. And Vale is, is she's such fun to write and we all loved her and she, you know, she absolutely agreed with me on that one. And then we kind of talked around some of the other ideas. She definitely wanted me to make sure that Keru stayed in the story as well. Mm. Yeah, that was so great. Those, those are the kind of two. From the very beginning, that was kind of, I think from the first conversation, we were like, okay, well, we're going to keep these two. Um, but as for other ones, we weren't sure, you know, we went around and we talked a lot about Tuvok, about whether we wanted Tuvok to be on the story or not. In the end, we made the decision not to put him in that novel because Tuvok is very much associated with Voyager. And, you know, there was a concern that like, uh, readerships who maybe aren't as familiar with the Litverse would come to this novel and go, well, why is there a guy from Voyager? on this mm. ship that doesn't make sense you know there surely belongs to this this other sort of continuity so rather than kind of have to go through all the explanation of why he was there and what he was doing it's like well let's let's just you know let's not have Tuvok as a character so and the, the one other character also that I, that I kind of brought over is um, a supporting character is Karen McCready mm. who is um, one of the engineering officers on the Titan named after a good friend of mine uh, a science fiction and fantasy writer and as I started writing the, the book, I realized I needed an engineer character. And I just thought, well, I'm just going to drop her in there as well. Um, so so those are the three sort of key Litverse characters. 
that that we brought over. And then thematically, there's a lot of other elements that uh, that, that I added in there, just sort of the the sense of it to make it feel like it still feels like a Titan novel, even if, as I say, it's this kind of different version of it. Well, and I mean, absolutely. I mean, you, like you said uh, here with with this novel and and writing this version, you know, um, we've got. Troy and Riker, uh, obviously there, but, you know, now they have Thad, you know, which is different, mm-hmm. you know, th- th- that they have a son so early. Um, and, uh, you know, so creating that family dynamic between, uh, you know, those three characters is, is something that is, you know, quite different from what we got in, in the Titan novels. And I think um, one of the things that I really appreciated uh, about what you did with the, you know, adding Titan into canon now was that relationship and and obviously we didn't get to know Thad at all because of uh, you know his death um mm. spoiler alert if you haven't seen Cap- uh, Picard series but you know um and to be able to see those characters interact you know um and kind of bring Thad to life in a way that you 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 get a picture in some sense of what he is in the show but here you really get to see that that character play out um and and that family dynamic again and you know, one of the big things, which is about where they're going to end up, you know, and, and planting the seeds about why they're not going to be on the Titan forever. I mean, again, that's that's something that um, there's a, one of the key directives from the very beginning again, that Kirsten brought to us. Was, she said to me, I want this to be a story where that is an integral part of the narrative, precisely for all the reasons that you just stated, because because we don't know him really in the story you know when you see nepenthe that episode where we, we meet kestra and we go to the the the, the riker troy's kind of retirement planet right everything we see about that is this kind of like ghost it's an echo of who that kid was and so what kirsten asked me to do she said this is the opportunity for us to, to bill in fill in the backstory of, of this person that we're never going to know on the tv but we can put him in a book and this is this is one of the great functions of doing time fiction is it gives you an opportunity to kind of fill in this little lacuna of story so once I started building that out, I realized that the family is going to be at the heart of this narrative, not just not just kind of literal blood family, but also found family as well, about talking about family in terms of um, the crew of the ship. But also when, when you look at the, the uh, villainous character we'll have as well, also has a kind of toxic family kind of relationship, which is part of sort of like her baggage. So that was a theme that I wanted to sort of marble throughout the entire story. So once we started building that in, it gave me an opportunity to, 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 to explain a little bit about who Thad was and also to cast a different light on the, the Riker-Troy Starfleet kind of relationship. Because if you look at the way those characters are played out in the Titan novels, in the Liverse novels, they're on an ongoing mission and you know, they're heading out of space and they're having these adventures. And there's never really a question in those stories about what's the future going to hold for us. It's about we are we are on this ongoing narrative and we're going out and having adventures. But of course, with the Picard storyline, we already know where Riker and Troy are going to end up because we see that they've retired from Starfleet and we know they had this tragedy in their life and it changed the way the the direction their life took. So I can kind of show now in this book the the beginning of that story because you know already how it ends. And now I'm saying, well, this is the direction they're taking it. And it gave me the opportunity to have Riker and Troy addressing questions that they previously had never considered which is are we doing the right thing is a future in starfleet the right thing for us you know maybe are we going to find ourselves in a situation where we have to decide do we want to continue to be starfleet officers or do we want to retire and have a family and of course we know how that plays out but this is the first moment where that question really crystallizes for them and that's not a question i could have asked 
really in the other books because it was an ongoing series and it didn't have this kind of predefined endpoint. A couple things come to mind there. One is, you know, the character of Thad uh, is is um, kind of a wonderkin, you know, with, with languages and he's, what, six in the book. And so um, I just wanted to ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about writing him because, you know, and, and we've We've seen this in, in, in Star Trek, you know, with, with kids that are really, really super smart already at, at a very young age. You know, Wesley comes to mind, obviously. And so um, I just wanted to ask you about the process of writing a character like that. And because that's a, a when you're talking about threading a line, you know, that's really difficult to do um, to create a character who who has this brilliance. And yet at the same time, you know, you don't want to make them like perfect um and and what i thought was really interesting is is how you thread that line with thad where it's like he has this brilliance and yet he also is six and there are lots of things to which he doesn't quite understand the repercussions of his actions yet because he's six you know he 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 doesn't know everything yeah it's very true i mean from a kind of dramatic mechanical narrative standpoint the problem with writing kids who are too young is that if you write them 100 percent true to where a kid that would be is they don't have a lot of dramatic agency to them you can't put them into situations of jeopardy and you can't have them kind of reasoning things through unless you construct that whole story around them and so you need to have a kid who is maybe a little smarter than he would be in real life to, to kind of help propel the story forward so part of the what the writing of that kind of lends itself well to, to creating a character who is a little smarter than maybe his age would, would normally allow. Some of the, the backstory, I love the, the initial kind of concept backstory stuff came from uh, Michael Shabon basically handed over this big sheaf of notes, which I think he's just recently put online that I think anybody can read now, uh, about the, the fictional language and the fictional world of Ardani, which um, is kind of Thad's legacy, is this idea that he was creating this as a kid. And there was a whole bunch of notes that, that Michael put together, and I just kind of cherry-picked a bunch of stuff from that and, and drew a lot of my inspiration from from there. But I also drew inspiration from um, some friends of mine who um, have uh, kids that they homeschool. And and the youngest, I mean, he's like he's an adult now, and he's like a computer programmer, and he's a game designer, and he's a sort of super talented, very very clever young fella. But I remember him when he was very very young, and you know, and I've been friends with them for the for these kids for their entire lives. And I do have a very distinct memory of of this young lad, me and him hanging out over the weekend when we were at the family's house, and he was just you know he was a little adult, he was really sharp, he was really just clever, and for a while I forgot I was talking to like a, a six year old kid. Uh, and then he did something wrong and he stubbed his toe and he burst out crying <laughs> and, and he suddenly changed, he changed back in, in front of my eyes, changed back into the child that he actually was. And, uh, and I suddenly thought, Oh my God, he's a kid, isn't he? He's just a little kid. And I'd forgotten that he was just a little kid. And, and that, that always struck me. And so, uh, I, I touched back on that when I was writing Thad is that idea of, how we as adults can, if you meet a precocious smart kid, you can kind of be fooled into thinking that they're a little person, a little adult, when in fact that, you know, that's just one facet of who they are. So I tried to draw all of that in and to try and make Thad feel like, you know, I didn't want him to be the kind of the one who solves all the problems, who's the sort of like the, the super genius kid. But I wanted to make him smart. I wanted to give him this kind of questing nature, which, let's be honest, look at his parents. What kind of person is he going to be? He's going to be that kind of person. So I wanted to try and make him feel as as authentic as I possibly could while still giving him some agency in the story. 
Yeah, I, to me, it was, was interesting is obviously we knew kind of some of his background. But uh, as you were writing him, I was kind of thinking it almost feels like the personification of Tolkien as a kid, um, you know, because of his love of languages and, and creating, you know, imaginary worlds and everything. And, and Thad very much kind of feels like a happier version of, you know, Tolkien doesn't have a super happy life um, in, in his childhood with with parents dying and all those kind of things. But, you know, uh, Thad kind of feels like the, the happier version of that, you know. Uh, and uh, no, I think it, I what I loved is that, you know, he he's he's a genius in his own right. And yet at the same time, you know, he's very much a child. And, and to me, that really worked. Um, and I was really, you know, thankful for that because it can. Uh, we've all seen the trope. Obviously, we all make fun of Wesley all the time for it. Um, and uh, so I thought that it never went that way so it was it was perfect um and it just created this nice family dynamic like you were talking about um and you know one well, I'm of the pleased things to hear that because i've always felt sorry i was going to say I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that i've always felt that wesley was one of my favorite characters on the show and i felt that he was never very well served with the writers right. who kind of really didn't get get a handle on him so my goal with that was to not make that mistake again yeah, that's great. And and well, and and one of the things, you know, um I was I was one of the other things you had mentioned about the, you know, the reason that, you know, Troy and Riker would would have these discussions, you know, and and I thought it was really interesting is and and you were talking about the theme of family, but one of the things I really picked up on is how this book really personifies the idea of fear and how every single group is is feeling that. Um, you know, the Federation and the response to synthetic life, the Romulans with their homeworld on the brink of disaster, and the Jazari who are responding to the change that the Federation's view of a, a synthetic life has and what it means for them. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, fear makes us do really funny things and makes us think very differently. And in, in, in so many ways, you know, <laughs> Yoda was really light about what fear makes us do and what it leads to. Um, and, and, seeing how that that fear changes the dynamic you know like just even thinking about troy and Riker, you know there's no fear in troy and Riker in the original titan novels um because the federation is 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 not this federation that we see in picard mm. uh, there isn't that fear for them and 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 yet we see that introduction of fear and that change you know they want to be the federation that they always knew and loved, but that fear has had an impact on it. It's changed them completely in, in the sense of how they feel and, and what they want to do with their lives. And so I just really appreciated that because, you know, it, it is, it, as Star Trek does, it is a reflection of our world. Um, and we have so many fears around us these days. Um, and it, it makes us do funny things. You're absolutely right. You know, that's, that is, Star Trek always is, right? It's the, I always say it's the funhouse mirror that you kind of hold up to the real world where we can tell stories that will maybe with this sort of candy colored coating of Star Trek over it, people can look at something that maybe if it was shown to them directly might be an issue they might not be able to handle. But if you say, well, let's set it on another planet and people with bumpy foreheads are talking about this issue. Suddenly you can kind of look at it from a remove and you can maybe analyze it more. And then that will reflect back into your, your real world assumption of things. So, yeah, we are living in a time where there's a lot of stuff to be afraid about and there are a lot of frightened people and frightened people make bad choices. And I wanted to put these characters into a situation where they're dealing with the aftermath of, of 
choices that they don't agree with and there's the threat of other choices in the future that they also don't agree with and it's like well how do you as a as a good moral decent person who wants to do the right thing how do you chart a course around that kind of stuff you know how do you stay true to the sort of better lights of your nature while pressures from the outside are pulling you in different directions and i think that's something that star trek has always sort of concentrated on and showed really well is that you know if we work together we can be the best possible versions of ourselves and that's just tough for me touching back on something that is a core tenet of what star trek's about well and it's it's a difficult thing too like you said you know when so many different people have made choices around you you and trying to decide how then you live and and that and and how do you make the right choices regardless of what other people are doing uh, and that's, you know, that's really what each section, I mean, every, every group here, you know, whether it's, it's Troy and Riker, uh, here, uh, representing the Federation, uh, or, or, uh, our Romulan commander, uh, and, you know, his Tal Shiar, uh, political officer, uh, who's also Vat Vash, and then you've got your Jazari, and everyone is dealing with these, these different fears, but also the reaction to those fears and then how they interact or, or how they perceive what is right and all that. Like it, it was, it was a really well-constructed theme. And I thought you did a great job of just kind of expanding on, you know, one of the things about a series, especially if it's a limited series like Picard was, and since we only had one season um, and you can't deal with all the ramifications uh, in that time frame, this really helped, I felt like, expand and allow us to spend more time with these, th- especially this theme, which was so important to driving the Picard series. And this is where I think you did a great job of combining, yes, this is a Titan novel, but we're exploring the universe that Picard series gave us in a way that helps us understand that show better understand the feelings of the people in that show better and that's i think this is where you know tie in fiction when it's doing its job is is really it's enhancing then what you'll see later uh or or watch on screen and i really appreciated how you were able to take that theme and and really make it prominent um with all of these different groups in a way that brought the show to life in a way that the show just couldn't do in the amount of time it has. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. That's, that's what times are for. I mean, if you look at um, what my colleague Una did with uh, last place hope and um, um, yes. with, uh, Mike Johnson on the, on the, on the Star Trek count, uh, the Picard countdown series, all of those, all of our books have been trying to, to sort of do what you say is, is that, you know, you watch Picard and there's a, there's a propulsive narrative moving through that story and that's the narrative that you should be concentrating on. But as you're going through that, you're thinking, that's interesting, that bit there, but that's not the main story. This is the main story over here, and I'm going to follow that. But I wonder what that was all about. And these books allow us to say, well, this was what that was all about. And, you know, the for, for example, Dark Vale is set one year after Picard has resigned from Starfleet. So we see that that moment in, uh, in flashback in one of the episodes where, you know, he's walked out of the Admiral's office and basically turned in his badge and gun. And this is a year after that. And immediately when I was putting this down as the sort of like the time period this was going to take place, I, my cog started turning in my head. And I thought, well, how are other people going to react to this? Because this is Picard is Picard's story, right? It's his name on the door, right? So it's, it's all about him. But this is an opportunity in a story to tell a, a little bit about how other people reacted. Because my first thought yes. was, if this is a Riker and Troy story, how would they react to the fact that Jean-Luc Picard has resigned from Starfleet? 
you know, that he get, you know, he gives the he goes to staff the command, he gives them that ultimatum, and they say, you know, well, there's the door, and off he goes. What would Riker's reaction be? Well, if you're going to resign, I'm going to resign. Is that what he would do, or would he try and find another path through things? How would you know the other people who orbit around John Luke Picard as a character react to this? And in and in this particular situation, how do a Riker and Troy react to this? Because this is what that novel's about. And in order to kind of anchor it in that. Uh, experience again to anchor it into Picard's experience as well. There's two key chapters in the book where Picard appears and has a sort of contribution to the narrative where Riker is sort of talking to him about the situation that they're in. Kind of almost like to bookend the novel, really, because I wanted to make sure that that Picard makes an appearance in the novel, not just because his name's on the book, right, but also because I wanted to make it very clear that this is connected to that Picard narrative. So we see. We, we have a cutaway to seeing Picard a year after he's made that resignation. And it's like, where is his head at in that time? And how has he changed? And what, what direction, what road is he going down? So to me, that was, that was very important to sort of make sure all those elements mesh together as closely as possible. Well, and, and I got to say, you know, I loved the, the addition of, of making sure that Picard was a part of the book. And, you know, I, that first chapter that he's a part of where he's talking to Riker and one of the opportunities that he has is to possibly go to Baku uh, and and be with an Anish. Um, you know, what an offer. Um, one, because, you know, that's going to do wonders for his health, which we will know from the Picard series is not in the best um, you know, he, 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 he's been given a death sentence. Basically, there's no cure for what he has. Um, and, uh, you know, wow. Uh, him saying no to that really <laughs> him not going, uh, he, he might be kicking himself for not going. So I loved that. Um, but I loved the way in which, like you were talking about, how did his decision reflect on, on, Riker and what he and Troy leave Starfleet and and I loved the fact that you know Picard did not feel like he could do any good um and he thought that you know his leaving Starfleet would give him the opportunity to make a statement and yet Riker and Troy have stayed in Starfleet because they still believe there's good that they can do there in that position and I really I thought that that was so and and you even show that because you know you show how um, you know, uh, different captains in this area, um, like from the Lionheart and the Robinson, which are great tie-ins um, to the Litverse, um, they have been doing what they can uh, to help the Romulans um, by, you know, leaving these caches of supplies for them, you know, and, and, and I just, I really love that because, you know, um, it's when we stop trying to do good that things just get worse, you know, and people like Riker and those other captains, Troy, together, they see that we can't stop doing good just because the the overall, you know, um, society is going to stop. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to stop doing what we know is right. And, and, and tying that in with, you know, Picard, I thought was just so smart because there's a different reaction between the two characters, you know, and, and as much as they love each other, you know, Riker is not Picard, you know, he's his own person. And I thought you really did a great job with that differentiation between those characters. Um, and it was then important to show that, yes, the name is Star Trek Picard, but Picard's actions don't make everybody react the same. You know, that was just great, man. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. I mean, that, that was, yeah, that was definitely, I wanted to have a moment where I could show that, you know, Riker says, well, we're, we're not going to resign from Starfleet, like you say, because we believe that there's still good that we can do. And it's kind of a lot of it is like, you know, when you're outside the tent, you can't do anything about what's going on inside the tent. So even if Picard's made the decision to leave, Riker's like, if I stay inside, maybe I can still exert an influence. Maybe I can still try and bring things back to true. And that's what he's doing there. But Riker being the kind of guy he, he is, who's not always, shall we say, constrained 100% by the rules, I can imagine him saying, well, let's just, you know, back channel some stuff here. <laughs> yes. Who could I trust? You know, reach out to, you know, I mean, I know I, I don't say specifically that Benjamin Sisko is the captain of the Robinson like we did in the Litverse, but that's my influence, my inference there. You know, if you're a fan of the Litverse, you go, oh, the Robinson was Cisco ship. So maybe, maybe it's Cisco, maybe it isn't. But what's going on there is definitely Riker and Troy and these other group of captains have kind of had a conversation around turn forward table and go, you know, could we could we just do a little bit of help? Just do a little something under the table, off the radar. How could we do that? We could just do a little something, you know, make some sort of effort to do something to help these people, even if we're being told by the powers that be that we can't do anything else. Because Riker's reaction, as you say, because he's William T. Riker, because it's, you know, Deanna Troy, their reactions are completely different from Jean-Luc Picard's. There's a moment in the the book where uh, Riker is talking to the Romulan commander, Commander Madaka, and and he says, you know, Jean-Luc Picard resigned over this. And the commander says, yeah, and he went back to his farm. You know, not all of us are privileged enough to be able to just walk away from this. You know, he went back to his farm and just kind of sat there and sulked. And this is kind of what he's inferring, right? And uh, and Riker's a bit insulted about that. He's like, you know, he wants to sort of jump to his friend's uh, defense. But there's actually an element of truth to that, is that Picard is in a privileged position where he can make this grand statement and then step away from things, even if, you know, of course he's troubled by it, and of course he wants to do something more to help. But he makes this grand statement, he goes off to his farm, and meanwhile everybody else is still dealing with the fallout. And Riker is in a position where he's still in Starfleet, so at least he can do something in a small way, hopefully, to kind of practically assist with the problem but at the end they're all kind of chipping away at this colossal great big imminent problem which is the supernova uh, and all they're doing is just slowing it down it's still going to come it's still this massive threat that everybody's going to have to deal with well and and there was such a beauty to that because you know our our greatest captains in, in star trek are are the ones who've always been willing to bend the rules when they didn't fit with what was right you know i that's you know our our our, our greatest captains in star trek you know have always been the ones who knew what was right they knew what was wrong and they stuck to that regardless of what the quote-unquote rules said and you know and implying that you know you've you've got possibly um you know the the cisco here uh helping out maybe or or um you know i guess uh lionheart wasn't that vaughn's ship if i remember correctly in the lit verse that was um, a that was a, a ship that I created for um, for the the poison challenge. Oh, that's which right. Is, um, You're absolutely uh, right. You're absolutely right. A Titan ship. So I I just put that. That's me being a bit self indulgent there, just uh, putting no, in a starship hey, that I created that I liked. But I mean, so but that's the thing is like again, you're you're, you're we're we're seeing these characters. You know, they're standing up for what's right, regardless of of what the you know. The, those on high say, you know, we're we're not going to negate our principles, and and I, part of that, you know, really led to this. Uh, there was a really interesting theme for me throughout the book. Is there's kind of this, um, I, I like to call it twisted truth, um, you know, especially with dealing with Romulans. The Romulan way of life is one of conspiracy, half truths, 
um, and, you know, just being confounded in all ways, shapes and forms, you know, um, and their life now, when you add the fear, has created a paranoia, which makes it really hard to know who to trust, you know, um, it's it's hard to know who to believe when fear makes uh, us, you know, treat so much of untruth as the gospel. And I mean, you, wrapping that into the Vat Vash storyline and their complete misunderstanding of what they have seen, they have a bit of this quote unquote truth, but it's completely twisted and it's it's made it very difficult to, to know who to um, to to look to. To, and and I really appreciate that because you know it, it was a great mirror for you know not only uh, ourselves but you know the Federation's going through that too. They have a twisted truth on what happened with synthetic life there on Mars, and that truth has completely twisted everything about the Federation. So you have these two great superpowers who are are com- completely driven by things that are only really half true. And it's really only the truth that could set them free, which will be, you know, what we'll see in the Picard series. Um, and I really appreciated that because it's a it's a very poignant theme for where we're living today. And I wanted to kind of explain that, you know, that kind of that idea articulates itself in the conversations between uh, Riker and Madaka is where you have these two guys who are. I wanted them to be, you know, mirror images of each other. We've always seen Romulans as a particular kind of person. So I very much wanted to write a Romulan captain in this story with a ship that feels like it's the Romulan equivalent of the Titan, where it has, you know, a captain with a similar kind of character to them. It's not a ship that's going out there doing evil things and subterfuge. You know, it's just it's just a regular ship of the line doing regular ship of the line kind of stuff, but getting pushed into situations where bad stuff is happening and you have to kind of, you know, the captain has to step up and go, okay, what's the best way to, to guide a course through this? I want to have a captain who has a moral core, who's a strong person, who, you know, as a father as well as a leader, to reflect the man that Riker is and then put these two guys in a situation where they're on opposite sides of the fence and there's this yawning chasm of distrust between the two of them. But they're both good men in bad situations. And what they probably both want more than anything is to be able to kind of shake hands and say, let's work together and make things better. But events around them are pulling them apart, pulling them away from that, that realization. But they're still struggling to try and pull back the other way. So that tension, I really wanted to make sure that that was a core part of the storyline to show that not all Romulans are, you know, conspiratorial backstabbers right there are there are good people there who are trying to do the right thing just as there are on the side of our heroes and it was fascinating to me because you know this storyline with this twisted truth you know it really kind of there's a there's a theme in the new wonder woman 84 of um you know nothing good is born from lies and that's kind of what we see in this book you know uh, even the jazari you know, it's not until the truth about them is revealed that it allows them that the truth sets them free and it allows them as well as Riker and Troy to be able to come up with a plan that's going to save their civilization um, because all the lies are gone. And now we can we can have a firm foundation to work from. And, yeah, you know, very, 
very much the kind of the you know the metaphorical dark veil of the story is yes lies and untruth you know that is that is what we're talking about it, it, that is the dark veil over this story is is lies and and you know and if if and if you have that it, it, it masks absolutely everything i mean it comes i don't know if you know the it, it comes from a quote by uh, benjamin disraeli which is if i get it correct it's all is mystery but he is a slave who will not struggle to penetrate the dark veil. Mm. So the suggestion there that, you know, that we all struggle to kind of see truth. And that is what's going on in the, that's the, that's the background radiation of this story is about seeing truth and seeing through lies. And like you say, your idea there, the, the way you conjure, I think is you hit the nail on the head, the twisted truth where it's been refracted through, through prism. And, and so you think, well, this is the truth. It's not now you're only seeing part of it. And because you aren't seeing the whole truth, you're being led down a dark path. Well, and, and it, it comes from that idea is when we do think that we completely know everything, you know, like, um, and we stop asking any questions. Um, and, you know, there stops being communication and openness, not only between ourselves, you know, and, and quote unquote, our group, but the other groups, you know, and we just begin to shut ourselves off, you know, as as the Federation has done to the Romulans, as the Romulans basically have done to the Federation at this point, and then ha- as the Jazari have done to everyone um, in the first place um, because of, of their fear, you know, from where they come from. And uh, I wanted to dive into them as a race because I really thought that they were fascinating uh, for this book and a great um, – Obviously, they're they're in a kind of the overall mirror for a lot of the things that have happened with the Federation and and with the Romulans. Uh, and so I just kind of wondered for you where the inspiration came in creating them as this gigantic mirror for the situation that's been going on in the Picard series. Well, the the, the kind of the core elements of of this story were originally kind of uh, an idea I was kicking around to do as a kind of lit verse time novel. And I wanted to do a story about uh, a generation ship, a group of people who were leaving the Federation to go off and strike off on their own. Uh, and the idea was going to be that there would be, you know, the, the Titan and a Romulan ship escorting the, this vessel to the edge of the Federation border where they could wave them off. And then there would be this situation would develop. But as I started kind of building the narrative to fit into the sort of Picard time, I realized that I needed much more than that to make these characters and their motivation feel true and authentic. And that was when I hit on the idea that their the, their their true nature. I mean, spoiler alert: this is, we're going into big spoiler territory now. Is their idea of their true nature of being an android species that's kind of been hiding in plain sight for all of this time, and how the Zatvash would react to the idea of discovering that? Because to them, that's absolutely terrifying. Because they're so you know convinced that anything that is any sort of form of android synthetic life is is totally terrifying and is going to destroy them to discover something like that, how that would feed into the paranoia of somebody in who was part of that, and the reactions they would have once I kind of got those connections, I realized the story just started to build out and build out i don 't know if you've picked up on the um the the hints i've dropped in there about the origin of the the Chizari. Yeah, and that's something you, that was just really – I was getting some of it, I think, um, but I wanted to ask you about that because it felt really familiar, and, and it's my fault for not completely getting exactly what you were going for. And so I please tell me because I was racking my brain, and it's just 
Ah, uh, I'm getting old. I think so. I'm, I'm being I'm being pretty subtle about it, but um, the big spoiler is is that they are the androids from I Mud. That, so okay. you remember that episode? Yes, yes, because I, I was like, this feels so familiar. And it's been a while since I have gone through and watched TOS. And so I was like, this feels so familiar. It's like on the tip of my tongue, but I can't get it. Oh, okay, yep, it makes complete sense. I mean, it's, it's, I wanted to put that in there. It's one of those kind of things where I thought, you know, if you don't miss it, if you don't know that episode, it's not going to be important to you. But if you are kind of looking for it, you know, I wanted to build a connection in it that kind of goes right back to the original series. Because when we saw those androids... You know, we, we learned a little bit about them that they were, you know, they were sent to our galaxy to sort of explore and, and you know, they run afoul of Harry Mudd and, and the episode's all kind of like jolly and it's very funny. Uh, and it ends up with them sort of being overpowered by the, by the, the, the ability to, for humans to be emotional and illogical. And, uh, and I always liked that idea. But again, like so many cool things in Star Trek, we never went back and kind of revisited them. And I, and I just thought to myself, well, what would, you know, originally I was building the idea of these guys being an android race. And then I thought, well, I've got this really interesting thing here from TOS that was never really explained away. Because what happened to them after that story? What happened to that planet full of androids? What choices did they make? And I realized I had this need in my story for an android species. And I just thought, it just makes perfect sense to me that they would go through this evolutionary change after meeting Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Harry Mudd and realize that, you know, they were... Well how, well, how did these humans defeat us? Well, because we, you know, we allowed ourselves to be sort of overruled by them. So we have to figure out how to improve ourselves and how to better perform our function, which is to kind of observe and record and everything. And that's how the Jazari grew out of that into being this species that, you know, they, they basically invent a species that will allow them to kind of go out into the universe and, and meet people and talk to people and have nobody know that they're actually androids observing them which is something very much that, you know, we've seen the Federation do the same thing with their yes. lines and their, you know, um, people, people getting disguised as aliens and going onto, you know, different planets and mingling with their species. And I thought, well, what if there was another species doing that to the Federation? And, uh, you know, there's even a line where um, Riker and Troy are talking to them and, uh, and Riker's kind of like, I'm kind of a little bit embarrassed that this yeah. has been happening to us. And then Deanna <laughs> says, well, you know, you did that yourself, you know, in yeah. that episode first contact where he goes to Malcor three, right? Yep. And and then they both did it when they were when they disguised themselves as proto Vulcans in Who Watches the Watchers, that episode yep. the title of that one. And, so and like, well, don't we, you remember Star Trek it, you know, Insurrection? Like, <laughs> and of course, right? So so it's kind of like, you know, source for the goose, right? It's like, you know, you did it to you did it to other aliens. You shouldn't really be surprised when another species does it to you. So that was just like a, a little kind of fun thing to explore. Well, and, uh, and once I had that idea, I just folded it into the the greater narrative. I I, I love that because I like not retconning myself, but there was a hint to, in my brain. I was like, is this like the I Mud character? Like because the 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 way you describe them being created and everything felt so familiar, you know. Like obviously, and and you had just dove right in there and just plucked that out, you know, from from the the Star Trek ether because it's already there. And I I think that's brilliant and. You know, what I thought, where this really connected with to me with the idea of truth is that if they had been honest with the Federation, how different would the Federation look at synthetic life, um, possibly, mm -hmm. because they had been truthful, because they had been a race to which had not gone insane, you know, um, and not killed everybody on Mars. And, and you would have had a juxtaposition of what 
you know, uh, AI can be, you know, and I just, I, I really appreciated that because their lack of honesty with the Federation actually hurt the Federation from having a different perspective, from being able to see something from a different point of view, as, you know, Star Wars would say. And I really appreciate that. And, and it, again, all these themes interweave because it's the Jazari's fear that leave them to do that. And yet it shows just how important, you know, openness and communication and truth uh, really is. Because, again, nothing good is born from lies. And, you know, in some ways, the Jari's reticence of sharing themselves fully with the Federation actually hurts the Federation. And isn't that what the Federation is all about, is that our openness and honesty and our sharing together makes us better than if we didn't have each other? I mean, consider for a second... The the kind of the, the fallout from that episode of Star Trek, the, the episode of uh, from from my mud, right? If the if the the the, the mud androids there had said, well, you know what, um, we're going to reveal ourselves fully, maybe even like join the Federation, and we would have had android crew members serving on Starfleet ships way before Data was even built. Yes, how would culture have been different, right? How because let's face it, and again, this is something I've banged on before with my my in my Titan novels. Um, I, I'm always fascinated by the idea of AI, of synthetic intelligence. And Star Trek's never really given AI a very good shake, let's be honest. I mean, it's, you know, when you look in the plus and minuses column for, you know, computers, synthetic intelligences, and androids, they're mostly on the bad side. I mean, Data's done a lot of work, but he's like just one guy, right? There's this. Even, <laughs> he's like, like the you know, token AI. <laughs> It's true. I mean, even coming up to like the present day, I was watching when I was watching Lower Decks and Peanut Hamper turns up, right? The extra exocomp. And I was like, oh, wow, the exocomp. And then she turns out to be a bit of a dick, right? At the end of the story. <laughs> I mean, quite, not quite yes. buying up the ship, right? But, but even then, I was like, oh, can we not have an AI character who's just like a good person for a change apart from Data? You know? I mean, we've got Data and Lol, right? And that's, that's about it. You know, we, you know, every time you talk about, Computers, synthetic computers, everybody's thinking of like the M5, an ultimate computer blowing up starships full of people, or it's the, or it's law being, you know, being super evil. We've always got this negative connotation. So I wanted to, to say, well, you know, not all androids are bad people, not, synth- not all synthetic intelligences are bad, but they can also be um, subject to the same kind of fears and make the same kind of mistakes that organic life forms can make it too. And that is exactly what the Jazari do here. It's like you say, they are, they're so afraid of their first encounter with, with the Federation of the, of the way it kind of like, you know, disarms their entire civilization that they, they end up creating, spinning this elaborate lie that lasts for hundreds and hundreds of years and then eventually leads to them just kind of running away. It's, it's so funny. You talk about this whole idea of AI because, um, you know, we're hoping to in a couple of months here uh, as we kind of have a break from new books coming out. Um, one of the things uh, we wanted to continue is uh, what uh, Bruce and Dan had, had been doing, which is walking through all the 24th century novels. Uh, and the next one on the list is Synthesis, uh, the Titan novel. Uh, and so we're hoping to cover that, which is all about this idea that you were talking about of AI. Um, and I, I think, that, you know, it's really interesting. And um I, I something at Chris, uh, you know, at, because of our time zones, uh, couldn't be here. But one of the things he mentioned was this, you know, idea of the AI ban, um, and you know how uh, this kind of reflects even our own 
world's uh, ideas of AI. And I think you just really nailed that on the head of just like even Star Trek, we have this fear of AI. And I, I think, you know, there is there is a portion of that that comes down to so much of our science fiction has been about AI taking over. You know, um, and I, obviously we're all af- uh, af- we're as human beings afraid of of Skynet. <laughs> you know, like I think that is so ingrained in our mm-hmm. psyche is that that is what we are fearful of of something that we um, can't control and that has no emotional attachment to anything, just as pure logic is going to dominate us. And that's something that you know when we think about Star Trek, like all the way back to the motion picture. You know, with V'ger, you know, having no emotional attachment to anything, just pure logic, just pure knowledge, just accumulating knowledge. Um, you know, that's what we're fearful of. We we basically want there to be a, a personal, omnipotent being, basically, you know, one who longs to know us and have a relationship with us, not something that's just this uh, pure logical. Um, thing that we would see as you know being tyrannical so i just uh, that's a really big subject james and i love that this book really digging into those type of fears that we have you know as as people as we're reading the book those are those come from us too Mm -hmm. i mean it's you know it's it's right there in in science fiction it's it's like it's one of the ur myths of sci-fi going all the way back to arguably one of the first science fiction stories ever, which is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is, yes. yep. you know, that that is a story about someone creating artificial life, which then kind of goes rogue and tries to know itself and everything becomes self-destructive. You know, that that's, that is one of the core tenets, one of the, the, the very beginning pieces of science fiction that ever existed. And we've just constantly years and years and years, we've gone back to the well with that and asked that question, you know, what does it mean to create, artificial life artificial intelligence and it, it seems like the the we always kind of fall on the idea of like it's going to be terrible and it will destroy us and it's like oh, well maybe that's that's a possibility that's on the table right maybe that is the skynet terminator possibility right but what if what if it isn't what if we're destined to we are destined to create artificial life and we'll create something that will that will exceed us that will will make our own experience and our own existence greater by the fact that it exists that is an equally interesting idea. It will help, you know, Data's mythology in the Star Trek series is of a life form struggling to know itself. And I think that was at the core of who he was as a character. And that was a fascinating journey to watch him as he went through the show, learning about who he was, learning about humanity and reflecting back at us as he's learning about who he is and struggling to know himself. And that journey is fantastic. And that's one of the greatest things that Star Trek has done is, is taking that idea and, and just spinning it on its head and say, let's not have a story about a machine that will destroy everybody. Let's have a story about a machine that, that will t- teach us more about being human. Right. And I think that's one of the things about AI stories that can do. Because, again, it's coming back to what I said before about the funhouse mirror, right? That It's the reflection. If we tell a story about AI, we're really telling a story about ourselves. Yeah. No, I, I heartily agree. And and one of the things that this all kind of connected to me again, and, and one of the, the major themes that I really saw here is learning from the past. And I love the speech that Troy and, and Will give to the Jazari uh, about the Federation. Um, and 
how they don't negate the sins of the Federation's past, and especially their recent past with AI, but they talk about this idea of moving forward with the wisdom you learn from your mistakes and for a better future. And in many ways, for that to happen, it takes us not being driven by fear, but that we're actually, you know, better together. Um, that that we would see the errors of our ways and that we would be able to move past them. You know, in some ways it takes self-forgiveness, right? As a society, we've got to forgive ourselves so that we can move forward. Um, and I really appreciated that because, you know, the Federation has made a, a mistake here. They've made a huge mistake. Um, as Michael, uh, as, uh, what's his face, uh, uh, Joe Bluth would say, I've made a huge mistake, Michael. Um, and uh, there's this there's this thing that the Federation needs to overcome. And I really appreciated that because I see this in our own society where where we're where we we continue to relitigate the past in a way that's not helpful, it's harmful, and we're we're not helping ourselves. Because it just kind of creates this fear in us instead of saying, okay, what's the lesson that we should be learning here? And how do we then apply that and move forward? And that's always what Star Trek has been about, you know, in our greatest stories. And so I love that Troy and Will point that out to them. We've made the mistake here. We know we need to learn from it. Um, And really the only way to move forward in that is that you have to be as uh, Will says you have to be the light in the darkness you can only do what you can where you can when you can and this is the best way to make a difference um, and and you know that tied into you know the, the Starfleet ships that are leaving these gifts for the Romulans uh, where they can you know because they know what's right and I just it really it really hit me hard that lesson um, and I thought it was really beautiful because I think it's it's one that our our entire world just needs to learn. Riker's saying a lot there. He's echoing kind of my personal thoughts about the the circumstances that I personally have been going through over the last few years about the circumstances I find myself and, and my family and my friends, my culture, my country, all of the choices that are being made around me, things that have happened that I don't agree with decisions that are going in directions I'm not happy with. And then as an adult, I have to look at that and go, well, how do I change that? How do I affect change as a person who wants to try and move towards what I think is the better choice? And if I'm not a person who's in charge of like governments and nation states, how do I, as just an ordinary man, how do I, how do I put a little bit more light back in the world? And the way you do that is you try and make good choices. You try and be the best person you can. You try and do the best you can in everyday situations, you know, from the smallest sort of working, working upwards, because that's all we can do right? as just regular, ordinary people. We can try and affect change where we can. And so Riker is definitely echoing uh, my thought process there is that, you know, if you make a mistake, you have to own it and you have to move on and do the best you can to kind of row your way back from it. Well, and, and what it also showed too, is that, you know, and, and this has been, I think, a real sin for me in Star Trek is that from for most of the time we've seen many of the, the civilizations and societies as monoliths. Um, and, uh, you know, you break down those barriers, especially with your uh, Romulan characters you have here uh, in the book uh, specifically. But we have to remember that the actions of some don't reflect the whole. 
you know, uh, mm-hmm. in our societies, even in, in groups in our societies. Like we, we, we can't just continue to paint with broad brushes and expect that to turn out well, you know? Uh, and, and so I, th- I really appreciated that because, you know, Troy and, and, and Will are a part of the Federation, but that doesn't mean that they're in lockstep with everything that the Federation has done. You know, there are different Jazari characters who are not lockstep with everything that the Jazari have done. There are Romulans who aren't lockstep with everything the Romulan Empire has done. And if we treat everybody as that, if that's the case, and instead of like individuals who we need to actually have a conversation with and get to know before we make a judgment on them, um, we're either going to be stuck where we always are, or we're going to forge a better future. And that's one of the things that we can do is, is actually treat everybody as if they're an individual who is worth getting to know and, and make a judgment based off our actual knowledge and not just some half truth that gets portrayed in the media. Because I mean, fiction often will, will kind of go down that route of the idea of the sort of, as you say, the kind of monocultural ideal. And the reason that's done in fiction is because it's an easy way to help tell stories, you know. So yes. every Klingon is, is an honorable warrior type, right? And so well, that, that can't be true. There have to be Klingon accountants and there have to be Klingon farmers <laughs> and there have to be Klingon yogurt extractors, right? There have, yes. there, has to, there have to be Klingons who aren't all warriors, right? They, they might have that sort of warrior culture and that warrior ethic, but, but not everyone is a soldier in the Klingon Empire because it just wouldn't work in just the same way that – you know, Romulans are kind of characterized as being this sort of backhanded, sneaky, troublemaker species. And they can't all be like that. I mean, maybe maybe there's something in their culture that kind of gives them a leaning towards appearing in that fashion. But not every single one of them would have exactly that, that type of cultural makeup. So, you know, in the story, what I'm trying to do is show that's the truth of these people is there's a line that Madaka says to Riker. He says, the mask you show us is is not who you are just as the mask we show you is not really who we are, but it's, it's important for us to make you think one thing because it, it benefits us, but that's not really the absolute truth of who we really are. Yeah. And I I think, you know, as we talked about with the Jazari and, and the idea of these twisted truths, like it, it requires us to have the courage to drop our masks and, and, and show each other the truth of who we really are um, so that we can move forward together. That's the only way that that's ever going to happen. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we're always going to agree with one another. We're going to either like each other, but, you know, um, it it does help break down barriers uh, that we just naturally put up. And, I, yeah, it's it's just really moving. I think, again, you, one of the things that this book does is it weaves every single one of the themes together uh, into a tapestry that really fits the story of, of what we saw in Picard. But I think it really deepens what we saw in Picard in a way that the show just wasn't able to do because it has its own focus. Uh, and I really appreciated that. So one thing, and this is a spoiler, we've already been in a spoiler territory, but there is a cameo at the end of the book uh, with a character that we all know and love and I just wanted you to talk about, you know, adding him in here and, and, you know, obviously his connection with kind of tying all this together with what Picard shows us and, and what, you know, Star Trek 09 showed us and kind of bringing that part of the story together. Well, um, 
the character is none other than Spock. And his appearance in the story, um, uh, once I kind of hit on the idea of it, I, love, I thought this will be a lot of fun because it, it, it goes very much at the, right at the end of the book. And it's, I, I wanted to just kind of put, let's put a fun rug pull in there that would, that would completely wrong foot the audience. Um, and what's great about it is, is it, it when he meets Riker on board this Romulan ship, Riker is completely wrong footed as well. So he, Riker has exactly the same experience that I hope the readers are having at that moment, which is like, oh my God, Spock's here. How did that happen? And part of that came out again out of the conversation that I was having um, with Kirsten is we were talking about the nature of the Romulans and what was going on in Romulan culture at this point. And we were talking about Spock's attempt to kind of continue the unification movement forward. And of course, if you've been watching Discovery, you know that ultimately that unification movement becomes a, a, a complete and full reality as the Vulcans and the Romulans finally reunite as Navarre. And they go back to being one the unified species that they were right back at the beginning of their history. So we wanted to just remind people in this story that that was still going on, that the, that the unification, the reunification, I should say, movement had not kind of gone away. And, of course, with the issue with the supernova, it's like, what happened to all these people? We, we know what Spock's fate is because of the 2009 movies. You know, we know, we know he travels back in time. And that's the end of him. But is that the end of the movement that he started moving, the, 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 the stuff that he was pushing forward? Obviously, it wasn't because it plays out later on hundreds of years into the future in Discovery. But we wanted to just put a little nod to that to say this is what Spock was doing at this point in history. You know, he intervenes in this story because, uh, you know, he hears about Riker in a situation and he basically comes to help out. But part of what he's doing is tying up a few little threads here and there with some of the stuff. I pulled some stuff out of the, 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 the Star Trek Countdown comics because there's discussion in that that says that it was Geordie LaForge who built the jellyfish ship yes. that Spock uses to travel back. So I wanted to just kind of say, you know, here's Spock saying, you know, I want to talk to Geordie LaForge about this Starship design idea I've got. And it's like, that's, that's a little nod to that. But the main part of it was to, was to show that the unification movement does not get destroyed by the Romulan supernova and that those people don't get kind of left behind the Romulus to die is that those people are still out there in the Romulan diaspora, still trying to make that happen. So that when you see it happens hundreds of years into the future, it feels like that's a complete contiguous line from that episode, that two part episode of, of TNG right the way up to what happens in discovery. Yeah. It just worked really well. And, and, you know, obviously <laughs> the connection between O9 and Picard and all that, it's slightly messy, um, as it is when you're trying to combine all of these things written by different writers and different ideas. Um, but I love the way that you kind of threaded that needle in there and help connect uh, all of these things, like you said, with the, even the countdown comics, using where you could there and all of that. And it just, it's fun, you know. I, I think that's the thing, you know, we got to remember with all this. It is also meant to be fun, and I thought that that was just a great connection. And it was it made sense that you would use him to be an influence to help with Riker in this situation. You know, um, I, I loved that. And I loved getting them to see that interaction there, um, you know, because, uh, you know, Spock is such a long lived character and has had so many different influences. You know, he's already there. And so you putting him into the story makes complete sense. And it was just so much fun. Um, and it was a great way to kind of, I felt like, wrap up the book and and again you know we we've got 
what, five years, I think, by this point from where we're going to be in the Picard series, I think. Um, you know, so there's other stories that we can we can tell here as well that to, to kind of continue to fill in the gaps if they want. Um, and I hope they will, because, uh, you know, to me, uh, this book really helped with um, fleshing out a lot of the details and the thematic elements of the Picard series in a way that makes those sit better with me personally as a reader. I mean, that's kind of what we've been doing with uh, the Discovery novels. We we followed the same model with Picard, with the Discovery books. Most of the, the Discovery novels are either kind of side stories or they're prequel stories about characters in the main narrative showing you aspects of them that maybe, you know, had been glossed over or just not really very well explored in the series because the the narrative of Discovery is very tightly packed. You know, there's not a lot of place where you could, oh, let's just drop a story in between these two episodes. And that's even worse for Picard because the Picard right. story, there's no gaps in that at all. There's absolutely no fountain there. There's no way you could, you could slot a story in like, you know, oh, the crew of La Sirena got stop off on a planet on the way somewhere and have an adventure. You know, that's, that's just not going to happen. So the stories we're writing about Picard are these stories that build out, like you say, you know, open out these these different narrative elements. I mean, when when we first had the discussion about doing a Picard novel, um, this wasn't even the book I was going to write. We were actually discussing doing a book about Seven of Nine's storyline. Oh wow! Okay. Saying, you know, there's this, you know, there's this big gap in the in the when when Seven turns up and she's you know she's this really cool kick-ass Fenris Ranger and it's like, well, how did she get to there from? where we last saw her on screen in Voyager in, in Endgame when, when Voyager comes home and that's the end of the story. How did she get from there to here? And we talked a lot about that, about how that narrative could work. And and I had what I thought was a really cool idea. I wanted to do it like a kind of Western. If you're, ever, if you're familiar with the movie The Searchers, oh, yes. I, I yes. wanted to do kind of like a, like a kind of riff on that. But as we talk more and more about it, um, the decision kind of came down from the show is like, you know, this is a really cool idea and we want to keep it for, we want to keep our powder dry on that and maybe do something in, in the show about it. So rather than exploring it in a novel, and I said, okay, that's fine. You know, as a tie-in writer, you have to follow the, the show always leads, right? So they decided that, you know, they, that might be something that they would pick up themselves at some future point. So we started looking uh, at other avenues that we could explore. And the two um, other themes that we were talking about was one was saying, well, what about doing a story about Riker and Troy and building out this narrative about their son Thad that we never really saw? The other option is we talked about doing a story about Riker on the uh, about um, Worf becoming captain of the Enterprise. In which the you mentioned in the book, which Picard. was so great. It, so you know, in so so in the wake of you know Picard's resignation, and I think Una talks about this a bit in um, Last Best Hope as well. Worf becomes captain of the Enterprise, and if you look at his kind of like you know he ha- he's got a kind of like slightly ill-starred kind of like rise up the command track, and he's had to work really really hard for it. And then he gets put in command of the Enterprise, not because, you know, well, I wouldn't say it's not because he deserves it, but because of what happens with Picard. It's like suddenly he's pushed into the position and maybe he might not have felt like he was ready for it. And I'm like, that's a really interesting story to tell as well. But ultimately, I chose to tell the Riker and Troy story because they're the two characters that I, I really love them a lot. And I thought that's the story I want to tell. And I hope, I don't know, I don't have any, I don't have any kind of inside poop to give you on this, but I hope somebody will do the wolf story as well, because that I think would be really, really cool. I'd love it. I, I mean, I'd love it again, you know, too, that's, um, that I think it's, it's a great storyline and he's a character to which I would love to see follow it. And, and you know, uh, 
his command of the Enterprise, I think, would be really, really interesting. Um, so I, all of those ideas honestly sound great, and I hope they all get followed up with in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, it, obviously, from being a person who uh, has um, really loved most of the lit verse, especially this 24th century era, um, you know, any any time I can see these different characters and where they go, it, it, it's exciting to me. And so, um, James, with you know, you've just had uh, the Dark Veil come out, uh, and and so, um, what else do you have coming up that you know people need to know about uh, that uh, they can be looking forward to from you, uh, so they can continue to support your writing? Well, um, I am working on a new Star Trek project right now. Um, I have to be careful what I say because this hasn't been officially announced, but, uh, I am, I'm working on something and it's going to be, you'll, you'll probably find out a little bit more about that probably towards maybe summertime towards later in the year, but, uh, we're keeping that undercover right now. But beyond that, um, I'm still working pretty hard on my, uh, my original thriller series. I, I do a series of my Mark Dane, um, action thrillers. Those are kind of contemporary modern day, fast paced, high tech techno thrillers. And just recently, the um, the uh, the U.S. edition of Ghost, which is the third book in the series, just came out in hardcover. And the um, the fifth novel, Rogue, that's going to be coming out in paperback here in the U.K. in April. Um, but beyond that, nothing else I can really speak about. It's all kind of like I, I've signed up to a whole lot of NDAs, and you know how these things go: is you have the yes. the ninjas. From the company you're working for, like, you know, don't say too much because, you know, that's it. We'll chloroform you and stick you in a bin somewhere. And that's, that's as much as you can say. So, um, yeah, I've got some cool stuff I'm working on. Um, I always say to people, if you don't want to keep a, an eye on what, what's up with me, just uh, follow me on Twitter at JM Swallow or come along to jswallow.com, which is my, my official website. And I, I always kind of try and keep that as up to date as possible about my work and, and what cool stuff I've got coming. That's great. Yeah. And uh, definitely we'll, we'll keep up. Uh, you know, with that, just to make sure we have all that information coming out with uh, what you're going to be doing with Star Trek and, and elsewhere. So, uh, James, as always, though, I just wanted to say a huge thank you uh, to you for for joining us on the show. It makes such a difference uh, to be able to to dive in deep with with the authors and you know, I, the Dark Veil, you know, added uh, a ton of depth, I think, to the Picard series and just so many wonderful themes to be able to talk through, which you know, is the power of, of great Star Trek. And so I really appreciate uh, you spending this time with us and can't wait to see what you have coming up next. Oh, I'm happy to do it. It's always um, it's always fun to talk, uh, like you say, in depth about these sort of things. The I, I always feel very privileged to, to be kind of part of the Star Trek universe. I mean, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Trek nerd from back in the 80s, and I've, I've been watching all of the Star Trek shows, just finished – you know, discovery only yesterday seeing the season finale for that and being kind of a bit on a bit of a Star Trek high, having sort of had uh, so much cool stuff to look forward to. And of course, here we are, we're possibly the best year ever to be a Star Trek fan, right? With so much new stuff, so much new content coming out right now. It's, uh, it's fun to be, uh, just, just have my hands in this universe and be able to add to it creatively and also be part of the, you know, the, the readership and viewership of, of these great ongoing stories. Yeah, this is great, James. Well, we'll look forward to talking to you soon. And again, thank you so much. Thank you.
Well, Chris, you know, it's always so much fun uh, to be able to talk to the authors. Uh, and I'm I'm so sorry that you were not able to be there. This is one of those where, you know, uh, both Una and James are in the UK and that makes it difficult with the time zone. So I was able to get this interview where you got the interview with Una. And uh, I guess maybe we should start yeah. flipping coins at this point when we have that. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> The time, the time that you and James recorded this interview, I think you started at 2 a.m. my time. So that was yeah. uh, one that was uh, not in the cards for me. Well, um, it's uh, it was great. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the novel and the interview. Um, I, I, I personally have to say, and, and I told this to James, you know, after, after we um, stopped recording, but I really liked this book. I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, and what this book did for me in helping ameliorate some of the issues that I have with Picard, not all of them, but some of them in the sense that him and Una, their books together have had did such a good job of, of helping explain the galaxy of the Picard universe, you know, and wh- why it mm-hmm. is the way it is. Uh, and I just, uh, James did a fantastic job with this, and it was so good to be back with him, of course, you know, uh, with his work uh on titan beforehand you know and, and the other books and now to bring it into canon was just phenomenal so hopefully everybody had a great time with it yeah i'm sad i missed it but um i've been enjoying the book and look forward to the next interviews that we have coming up so uh matthew when you are not trying to get yourself a posting there aboard the titan where can people find you? Well, uh, you know, you can find me. Uh, you know, I just remembered this, Chris. James is the one who put me into a Star Trek book as a Star Trek ship. Yeah, so, well, and me yeah, too. Yeah, with a Titan book. Well. So uh, from the Poison Chalice. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that just, right. just came to mind. But anyway... So you could find me uh, all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. Uh, if I'm on that social media platform, you'll find me under that moniker. Uh, here on the network, you can find me doing uh, the Six O Two Club, which you can follow on Twitter as well at the Six O Two Club, uh, where we're talking about all things geeky that we love that aren't Star Trek. Uh, and of course, you'll have coming soon for you uh, a new podcast uh, from John Mills and I as we're talking about all of the directorial works of Zack Snyder on Snyder Cuts. So I look for that. And of course, Chris, when we get a chance, we're also doing The Orb. And we promise, folks, we were even talking about tonight, we're, we're working on getting you some more orbs. Uh, we want to be back just as much as you guys want us back. So make sure you check that out. And then... Um, of course, you could find me over on the Nerd Party Network doing uh, Owl Post with Dre Kaufman as we're finishing out the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills. Every week, a Star Wars topic from us. We It's a Star Wars podcast, so hopefully you'll check that out. Um, now, Chris, if, if people are just wanting to catch up with you and, and see what's going on and what you've got planned these days, where can people find you? Well, at the moment, that would be on Twitter because that's where I'm most active right now. I do have some podcasting on the horizon. I just made the transition, the long-awaited transition with my job. Uh, still doing the same magazine, but the uh, behind-the-scenes logistics of that have changed a bit and should put me in a better position to be able to do other stuff. So on the horizon, I'll have some more podcasts coming up. But for now, I'm doing a DS9 rewatch. Just started. Uh, of course, I've been watching Discovery as it 
played out its third season and such. And I talk about that stuff on Twitter. So uh, C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y is the place to find me there. And otherwise, uh, in terms of podcasts, there's the ready room. Larry and I have been talking about recording a new episode soon where we'll do our recap of season three of discovery. I have been working on some episodes of the edge to fill out this season of discovery with my usual format. And also, uh, we have, as you mentioned, the orb going on there and uh, Interface, I plan to get going again soon as well. And uh, Matthew, it's funny, you, you mentioned James put you in the Poison Chalice as the Matt Russ, which was an Andorian ship. And that was a Titan novel. And the one that James put me in was also a Titan novel. Uh, that's that right. Sight Unseen. That's right. I uh, where forgot. He he made me the captain of the USS Tokyo, mm, a classic. and I was on a four year mission to the Gum Nebula. So that's uh, the the book. So he's put both of us in Titan novels, ah, <laughs> which was fun. Good times. Well, yeah. uh, Chris, we do want to also All say right. uh, a quick thank you to our associate producers through Patreon, uh, Greg Rosier and and Casey Petit. Uh, we really want to thank them for the support of Literary Tracks as, of course, the network. Um, you know, as we head into 2021 now, we can absolutely use your support uh, because there is no way that we can bring this network to each and every week without your support. Uh, and uh, we definitely and would love to see those levels of support rise. It, it's been very difficult for us to make sure that this is all keep coming to you each and every week. Chris, as you know, and yeah. so absolutely, where could they go if yeah. they wanted to be uh, a part of the network and support the network? Yeah, well, that is very important, especially right now, because we're uh, having a little bit of, of difficulty that we're working through uh, due to you know, the pandemic and various factors, which have created some uh, issues supporting the network. If you'd like to help out, just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to find out how. I am going to be updating that page soon. I've actually gone in and tried to update it and ran into some problems there on the back end of how to do it. But anyway, we are going to be adjusting uh, some of the perks and the levels. I have some ideas. Of course, we'll have the roundtables going again. I've got some ideas for other ways for us to all get together and have fun talking about Star Trek online here during the pandemic beyond the usual roundtable format. And also some ideas for some patron-only content that I'm planning to produce, some shorter content that should be fun and interesting and you'll only be able to get through Patreon. So uh, please check it out, patreon.com slash trekfm. And we could definitely use your support. And really, really thank you very much to everyone who is supporting the network now. Well, Matthew, I'm going to run and make sure Bones is okay because they took him back up to the ship. And, you know, I, I, I hope he's mixing up one of his own little green elixirs to make himself better because those people in Proxima Centauri really need his help. That really does sound like a good idea, Chris, because you know how I love Bones. But we do want to say thank you so much for joining us. And until next time. Live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.